text this morning is from Matthew chapter 5. If you, would like, if you are able to, I'd like you to stand as we read from God's Word. Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and, it's light, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, please open your word to us. Please speak to us through your word, to our hearts, to our minds. Strengthen us, encourage us, clarifies for us who we are and what you have called us to do and what you have given us for that task. Pray that you would give me clarity, Lord, as I speak your word and pray, Lord, that you would build up and equip your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This is a fairly straightforward sermon this morning. I, I like diving into passages that have interested me for a while um, and, and work with sort of the nuances within the passage. But this one, I just feel like the events, especially of this last week, um, require clarity. Um, it's having, having a wife who's a teacher at a small Christian school and having a, a seven-year-old who's a student in a, in a Christian school um, the proximity of age just brings a proximity of heart as well. I don't know how much you, you dare to follow the events of what happened at the Covenant School, but it's, it's shocking. It's shocking and stunning in so many ways. And it's, I don't know about you, but it's so hard to know what to think. You feel the pain, you feel the hurt. I can't imagine... As, as the head pastor who's lost his daughter, what that next sermon's going to be like, or if that's even possible, what that family's going to feel, how that school is going to possibly reconvene. But even, even watching some of the video of, of the police going in and, and subduing the, the killer, it's, it's hard not to feel pain for that person as well. And we should feel that pain. The, the danger, especially in a televised age, is so easy to distance ourselves and detach ourselves and not feel anything and deal with the facts on paper rather than the reality of human existence. Jesus wept. The, the, the God who does not feel emotions like we do wept. I don't know how to make that equation work, but we can't set aside either of those realities. He is God, and yet he knew and understand and experienced and empathized in a way that we can understand, and so must we. We dare not look away. And then it happened this week as well, a report that, or a poll that caught my eye. Um, back in the beginning of March, first couple weeks of March, there was a, a survey done of a thousand adults on various, various sort of large trends. Uh, to the statement, patriotism, patriotism is very important. 
uh, 25 years ago was at 70% agreed, is now at 38%. Religion is very important, went from 62% over the same time to 39%. Having kids is very important, went from 59% to 30%. Community involvement is very important, from 47% to 27%. The only noticeable rise was money is very important, went from 31 to 43%. Um, but, but out of those, you can see those, I mean, you, could, you could tease each of those apart, but the one that seemed to capture what's going on with all these different trend lines was this statement. America's confidence that life will be better for their children's generation than it has been for them. 78% did not feel confident. Only 21% did. I do not know how the, how the future will go. I do not know if this is a trough or if this is a slope. I don't think any of us does. In life, in history, things can certainly get better or they can certainly get worse. We don't know. Nevertheless, we have to think as Christians, how do we respond to this? This is a week of bad news. This is a week of devastating news. Not to mention all the other news. I mean, yeah. So many different challenging things have happened in the recent, in the recent past. And, and what's, what I've been watching is how Christians have been responding to this. And it seems to be three general responses. There are many who seem to want to fight. Number seems to be, that seems to be increasing every day. Whether it's fighting the culture, we've had enough, let's take the country back, Let's restore it to some version of a former glory or move forward to some future sort of glory. We are done taking it on the chin. We are done being weak. We are done lacking courage. It's time for us to stand. We are God's people after all. Look what happened in Scripture when God's people stayed quiet and did not take courage in what they believed. There, there are some, and including some in this group, that don't simply fight the culture, but they also fight the church. They point the, the finger at the church and say, this is our fault. It's the church that has failed the country, and it's on us. Maybe if the church would get, would get its act together, things would be better. There are problems with both of those. There's significant problems for us if we are called to follow Christ. The, the same Jesus who said, put down the sword as most needful moment. But also, there are warnings in Scripture about judging your fellow believers harshly. I, I've been to enough different churches. One of the, one of the one of the small but very precious set of advantages of going around to different churches. One of the disadvantages, my wife saying this week, I go to church without you more than I go with you. I was like, oh, sorry about that. But I do enjoy it. I love this. But I get to go to a number of different churches. And you know what I see? I see Christians trying to live faithfully before God. Not churches who are shrinking in fright. Not churches who are trying to be unfaithful. Who are wrestling with these things. With a Bible open, prayerfully trying together to figure out how do we respond. I don't see the people at the ones who are attacking the church in the churches I'm going to. Maybe they're in other places. Granted, I haven't been to a lot of them, but I, to me, that one just doesn't seem to land. And it, again, it seems actually more 
more prone to dividing the church at a moment where we need to be united. So those who want to fight, and there are those who want to hide or seem to want to hide, to disengage, as if to say, the world is already lost. This is the harbinger of the end, or we're already in the end. We're already heading down the slope. Let's focus instead our energies on creating a space for ourselves and for our family, for our community, where we can worship and live in relative peace. There's nothing wrong with that by itself. But what are we called to? And what effect does that have on that calling? To hide, to withdraw, to shake our heads, to not, to not seem to care. Then there are those who are simply giving up. They may not be renouncing the faith, but you see a lot of these so-called ex-evangelicals what seems to be happening less is a renouncing full of the faith, but moving to some form of agnosticism. Who can really know? I, I'm not ready to write off God altogether, but I'm just in this space where I, I really don't know what to think about anything anymore. And again, I would say in all these categories, I think these are, these are, these are not bad people. These are good people who want what we want, who desire to know God, who desire to know His Word, to, do, to have that hope, to have that, that joy, to have that sense of purpose that we all do. But these are tough times. And as I said, I don't think any of these responses are necessarily unreasonable. But are they right? And the existence of these different responses speaks to the larger issue, which is that the American church seems to be in a bit of a disarray right now to understate things. We don't seem to have a clear idea of what we're supposed to do. Which, of course, the proper response is to take to social media. Hash it out there. But no, this is where, this is where I think, I, I prefer simple. I like simple. I like simple and clear. It just helps me get my handle on it. I think this is just one of those Sundays where simple and clear is what we need. So if you think, remember those books that had like overlays, those really cool kind of clear overlays, you had like the body, the skeleton, then you put overlay to the circulatory system, the muscular system, and then maybe at the end the skin, you just, this, that's kind of what we need here. We need to kind of peel back all the layers and get down to the bones and then start layering stuff on. And so that's, that's how I see this passage that we're dealing with this morning. We do what Christians have always done. We go back to Scripture. We need to locate ourselves on the page, find ourselves on the map again. Who are we? What are we supposed to do? And I think this passage very clearly answers those questions. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Just two points I want to pull from this this morning. I'm sure you've heard sermons on this and talks on this many times, but I think the two that are pertinent for us this morning First of all, is that we are, we are both distinct from the world and yet placed in the world. We often maintain one at the expense of the other, but we are both. We're simultaneously distinct. We are God's people, and yet we are set in the world. You probably remember Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians. When I, when I said avoid sinful people, I didn't mean people of the world. Otherwise, you have to leave the world altogether. We're meant to be here. We're meant to be in this space, not just in this church, but in this community, in this world, as God's people. 
Or another way to put it is our purpose is to stand out from the world, but not apart from the world. Which means we can't hide. We can't build walls or clubhouses. We have to open the doors. And we have to go out. And that's part of the second point out of this, is that we are, to be, we are here to be a blessing to the world. I've heard a lot of different explanations of both salt and light. And I, I'm not sure whether it's the seasoning or the preserving. I think that's, you can, whichever one you prefer is fine. I think regardless is that salt in either way makes an improvement to what it seasons. It makes it better than what it is. Light makes things better because it illuminates. It shows you where to walk. It, it helps you to avoid the dangers of a darkened room. They are beneficial presences. They are beneficial purposes. That is what we are. And not just simply, I hope you understand what I say, not, not just simply by preaching the gospel or preaching the word. We, we have, I mean, this probably shows my stripes more than anything. I I'm, I'm, was raised in and part of a, a, a slice of evangelicalism where preaching the gospel meant exactly what it says. Here's God, here's sin, here's the problem, here's Jesus and the cross, and then heaven. And that's, that, those four or five pieces are the sum of it. And we don't really need to work out everything else, and then we'll just leave it to you to see what the Spirit does with it. And, and God does do things with that. I don't want to denigrate that at all. But there's so much more for us to say about that. There's so much more. And, and the thing I said earlier, I like simplicity. In part, I like simplicity because I think we've made the work of living as Christians, of being salt and light, way too complicated. And the reason why I say that is I, I can imagine that many of you out there are like, okay, I don't know how to do that. I don't know what to say. I don't know what the next step is. And I don't think what Jesus is saying is all that complicated. I don't think you need a PhD thesis on the topic of being salt and light before you can be salt and light. It starts with the very next thing that you do once you leave here. I'll come back to that in a moment. The other thing about these two pictures that Jesus uses is that neither one is really exact. You're salt. You're light. What do you do with that? There's a lot of times in Scripture where you get these very clear statements, but when you start to think about them, it doesn't really give us specifics of what that means. Almost as though Jesus meant for us to take that and use our minds to think about, well, where is this then needed? As we leave here this morning, where is salt needed? As we leave here this morning, where is light needed? Where is the need? Isn't that how Jesus walked? How often did Jesus go to where the need was and address the need? Part of our function, part of our identity as God's people is to carry on that work out into the world that we live in. So what is needed? Well, think back about the statistics that I gave you. What, what we can see in, in the larger, larger trend lines is that people are increasingly isolated from each other. 
the, the trust in institutions, whether it's church, school, government, military, police, whatever, is cratered. And the response to that kind of institutional distrust is people go home, their own home. Social media has accelerated and enhanced our ability to live isolated lives with the illusion that we are well-connected. But we don't even know how to have a conversation anymore. A couple, actually a month or so ago, uh, we had a, a winter retreat. Um, we had 40 young people, so late, late teens, early mid-20s. I got to sit with a, a group of guys at, at the lunch, at one of the meals, and we were talking, and they, they told me, they were telling me about how they had, uh, a couple weeks prior, had gone over the mountains to Seattle to see Jordan Peterson talk. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Jordan Peterson. He's a professor of psychology, he used to be up in, I think, Toronto. Um, but he is one of many voices right now that are capturing the ears and the minds of young people, uh, in part because they are, they are, speaking clearly about the world, about how to engage the world thoughtfully and, and honestly. Jordan Peterson has, assembled, I don't know if you've heard this yet, but Jordan Peterson has assembled a team of scholars and they're having an open conversation about the book of Exodus. If you pay a little fee on YouTube, you can watch the whole thing. It's a very Socratic way of opening up the scripture. And these, these young people I was talking to were just fascinated by this. I had no idea that there was so much in Exodus. Yeah, maybe we didn't either. <laughs> but, but they want to know. They're hungry for that. But, but on top of that, Peterson and others are, are covering topics that to us we maybe take for granted, like how, how, to, how to deal with pornography, how to talk to a girl, how to clean your room, which sounds silly, but we live in a disconnected age. They simply don't know these things anymore. And, and we, who, we, that's just kind of second nature to us, we assume wrongly that they know this instinctively, and they don't, even though we've taught them that, those of us who are parents. But they just, they don't know. They're lost. You know what they hear from the church? What's wrong with you that you don't know these things? But Jordan Peterson says, come. The church, they hear from the church, go away and figure it out, grow up. But these others say, come and we'll show you. You know what's needed? <laughs> they need relationships. They need people who listen to them and take them seriously. They need friends. Friendships are dying as an art in the Western world particularly among men. We, we don't, we are disconnected, we are, we are disengaged, we are lonely, we are hurting, we don't know how to talk to each other anymore. Where's the need? Do, do Christians know anything about relationships? Oh my goodness. We sing praise to a triune God. We are in relationship with the Father, Son, and Spirit. We are in relationship to each other. We understand marriage as a relationship. I was just listening to um, someone teach yesterday on the book of Ruth, and Ruth really is a book about relationships, about friendships, 
of Ruth the Moabite befriending her mother-in-law and caring for her, or Boaz, though he didn't need to, at first as an act of friendship, befriending and taking under his wing Ruth. People that should have been separate, people that had no relationship to each other, but were guided by mercy and compassion and love. We know love, don't we? We understand relationships, don't we? Don't, isn't the story, isn't, isn't the, the, the thrust of what Jesus did is to restore us to fellowship with God? The need of the world is they have nothing in terms of relationships. So suicides go up. And the whole gender dysphoria movement in the absence of relationships and in the absence of really any hope of any sort of objective truth, in the absence of any sort of trust in any institution that can guide them in any way, people are left to themselves and they are dying and taking people with them. They need relationships. They need friendships. We are salt. We are light. They need wisdom. It is very common to us to downplay what we know and have learned or downplay what we know and have learned because it's been through failure and sin and not through a series of successes. But anyone here who's lived any amount of time has wisdom that is needed how do I do this? How do I understand this? How do I walk through this? The, the world is crying out, help me for wisdom and turning to each other for it instead. But we are salt. We are light. And we don't just have our own wisdom, do we? We, we have the proper perspective on things through the Word. We know how to orient people differently, especially during this season. We have the wisdom of the resurrection to bring to bear on the killings at Covenant School. We have the wonder of the resurrected Christ in the midst of time when we are losing faith and hope in anything. Or even facing death in the face itself. We have wisdom, don't we? Your salt, your light. Hope is needed, hope of understanding, hope of mercy and forgiveness. Especially, I mean, one of the things that struck me about this retreat is despite our best efforts as a church generally, what we are leaving a lot of young people with, young people in the church who really do desire to know God and walk with Him, we are leaving them with an increased sense of shame about themselves. They, they see God as an accuser and not a friend. They see themselves as hopeless and do not understand how the cross of Christ applies to them. Somehow we've garbled the message or the ground has shifted. But we are salt. We are light. How do we help them understand? How do we speak to them in words that they understand and not in the words that we understood in our day? Because what we what we understood, what worked on us, does not necessarily work anymore or in the same way. 
How do we build those relationships? Rather than relying on the proclamation simply of the truth. They're hoping for something good, something beautiful, which is especially needed now because it's easy just reading a litany of stuff at the beginning. It's easy for us to complain about the end and long for Christ to come again. And we should. But those of us who are Christians know that there is yet hope in this life. As we were reminded in that verse that was read right at the beginning for our meditation. He turns our sorrows into dancing now. In the midst of pain, in the midst of loneliness, in the midst of war, there is yet hope, there is yet beauty, there is yet healing. Isn't there? There's no hope otherwise. You are salt, you are light. Where's the need? And they need examples of good institutions, of these larger frameworks. They need to see a church that, that, that understands what it is and not what it pretends to be. They need homes and families that understood what they are and not what they hope to be. We need God's help daily. We do not do this well. We are still learning. We are learning through our failures as well as our successes. We have much to confess and much to rejoice in. We hurt each other and we love each other. We laugh, we cry, we experience pain, and we celebrate new life. That's life in all its richness. We know that, right? And we know that, especially as Christians, that all that has a new kind of meaning than just this, the wheels of time churning away. There's a purposefulness to all this. There's things to be learned through all this. There's a knowledge that we are not ultimately crushed by any of this. Because death has no sting for us anymore. You are salt. You are light. There's a need for us to build these things and bring them to the places that, where they're needed. They need good families. They need good churches. They need good businesses and good schools and good communities. You are salt. You are light. That's not just simply a matter of what we say, but also what we do. Remember how Jesus ends that. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God your Father who is in heaven. Those aren't simply good works like they look at us and say, wow, Christians do such good things. But that they know the goodness of those things. They see the goodness of those things. The good schools, the good families. They savor that. They understand it. They get it. They experience it themselves. And they praise God for that. Now, none of this is meant as a strategy for success. But I present it to you as a way that God's people are meant to live and to show forth His glory in the world. And this is the season that helps us to understand that, I think. Today is the day on the church calendar when we remember Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. This is it. This is a remarkable event. He is, if he has been mysterious in any way about his identity, it's over today. He openly declares his messianic identity in, in all but words. He rides into the city on a donkey, and the people immediately understand what he is pointing to in the Psalms. 
He immediately understands what he's expressing, what he's doing. He didn't accidentally do it, and people found palm branches accidentally. It's just all kind of happy accident coming together. There's a deliberateness to all of this in which he's declaring, I'm here. The time has come. And then to cap that off goes from there into the temple as if to say the exact same thing. I'm here. Well, who do you think you are? It's my house. Jesus, you're being a little ambiguous here. Get out of my house. Who do you think you are? I mean, all the sort of reflexive questions that could come at that moment, he's answering in his actions, isn't he? he there's, no, there's nothing here that he's, oh, is that what you understood me saying? Sorry, I, I should have been clearer. He's unambiguous about what he's saying. This is the moment. Imagine that moment for the disciples. Like, this is it. This is the kind of victory that we long for, isn't it? For Jesus to come back, to make everything right, and to deal with all those who are against him, and to bring justice and bring healing and all that stuff. All those feels, as the young people say, must have been felt in that moment for the disciples. It's happening. This is it. The momentum is entirely on Jesus' side and our side, too. And yet not everyone bought in. His enemies didn't go away. And before the week is out, he was betrayed by one of his own disciples and arrested and tried and convicted and beaten and killed. It felt like total failure. I hope you read the Luke's account again this week of the road to Emmaus. Because there's a point where Jesus is talking with his disciples and don't recognize him. One of them says at one point, it's like, we thought he was the one. They just feel the bottom's dropped out for them. He's gone and everything that came with him. We have just reset back to zero. We are back where we started. He's gone. Don't you get it? Just go home. And then Sunday came, and his death wasn't the end. He's alive. And, and if ever there's sort of the, the moment of mental grinding gears, you could see that with the disciples. Like, what is happening here? Nobody, if they remember his words, they didn't understand them fully. Who could? Who could? And victory had been wrenched then from the jaws of defeat. The big momentum is back. And then 40 days later, he's gone again. And they are on their own again. And the enemies are still there. And then Pentecost comes, and the church explodes, and it's joyful and fearless and growing. And ever since then, the history of the church has been one of these same kinds of ebbs and flows. Hasn't it? You have these moments of triumph. The church explodes. 3,000 are added in a single day. Amen. If we get the right technique down, we can just multiply that day after day after day without end, right? As part of a church planning network that within 10 years we're going to plant 200 churches. Amen. Let's do it. Why can't we? Well, <laughs> the, the laws of reality are like the laws of gravity. It just doesn't quite work that way. The enemies remain. The, the victory is not total yet. 
We will have successes and we will have setbacks. We are in life between advents. We will do well and we will fail. Many will hear and be saved and few will hear and be saved. Yet the call remains the same. And the hope remains the same. One day, one day it would be different. That this meal was first celebrated on the night that he was betrayed leading up to his death and then his resurrection with him saying, the next time that we eat this bread and drink this cup will be when I return. Like the, the big return, the ultimate return. The real feast. No more little cups. No, we will laugh at these days. Remember when we called this a feast? We all convinced ourselves this is a feast. We all knew it wasn't a feast. Nobody considers this a feast. And we will no longer drink the accursed grape juice again. But good wine and fatty foods and all the good stuff that we were meant to eat that didn't ruin our bodies nowadays. No preservatives, none of that stuff. But good food. And the banquet with him. And the victory will be total. There'll be no more cycles, right? No more troughs and mountains. Glory. Day after day after day without end. He will deal with his enemies. He will establish justice. He will set up his kingdom. He'll make all things new. And in the meantime, we watch and we work. We laugh and we cry. We eat, we fast, we give birth, we lay to rest. Salt, light, shining forth the glory of God in the midst of life as it has been since the beginning. Horrible, crushing, discouraging, full of death and disease and conflict. And you are salt. And we are light. Portholes to a better place, a better kingdom, a better king, a greater hope. How can we hide that? How can we keep ourselves from shining that forth? How can we stay in the church the remainder of our lives? We're sent out. So as we, as we reflect on this week, on what Christ has accomplished, what he endured all for our sake, all, all both testifying to the reality of God his great righteousness, his great wrath, his great wisdom, his great mercy, his great forgiveness. We cannot hold it in anymore. You are salt. You are light. Where is it needed, people of God? Where will we go? What can we do? How can we bring this to the world for his glory and for their benefit? In fact, let's just not worry about the world. Let's worry about Mount Vernon. How can we take it out there? First step, greet your neighbor today in the name of the Lord. Love your family. Love your kids' friends. 
coach a soccer team. Do something that shows forth the glory of God to a world that is in great need right now for anything, for anything that gives them hope. Let me pray. Lord, it's hard to understand why you would use us. You could do this work so much better than us. But I think, in part, it's in learning how to do this ourselves, how to walk in your footsteps, how to live as salt, how to live as light, is also the way in which we learn more about you and how you've dealt with us, but also in, in the real hope that you bring to the world. So Lord, I pray, I pray for us as a church that we would no longer close our eyes and our ears to the need that is right around us, the hurt, the pain, the hopelessness, the loneliness. Lord, we have been made rich in all ways. We are full of salt. We are full of light. May we be a people of love towards those around us, of compassion towards those around us, that, that we would, you would help us to use our minds, Lord, to, to build things that benefit a community a people that are otherwise hopelessly lost. You give us compassion for them, even for the worst of them. Because your mercy, your love, your forgiveness is immeasurable. So Lord, give us hope in this. Give us energy for this and excitement about this. And may we really claim this as our purpose, as your people, to live this out as we go from here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.